This morning I want to talk about following the call. I know that Bobby last week uh, made a statement in his, in his teaching that all, uh, all disciples are Christians, but not all Christians are disciples. Uh, and that's a profound statement. It's a true statement. And it's uh, something that, that I think we need to consider that we're called to be disciples. And so uh, as we begin, if you look with me at Matthew chapter 28, this is the passage that we call classically the Great Commission. It's um, the, the last words that Jesus spoke before ascending. Um, it is the, the passage where he sends forth his disciples with a call and with a commission. And uh, I just want to, I'm not going to pick it apart, but I just want to read it for our uh, observation. It says in Matthew 28, verse 18, it says that Jesus came and he spoke to them, saying that all power, that is all authority, is given to me in heaven and in earth. And so in light of that, in light of the fact that he's the, the one with the authority and with the power, uh, that's the, the platform on which he's standing, he says, therefore, verse 19, go ye, therefore go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, that's evangelism, and then verse 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If you look back up in verse 16, uh, in the setup of the passage, uh, it says that the 11 disciples went away into Galilee um, there. And so, so it's the disciples that were gathered, and then um, they were commissioned to go and teach and then verse 20, he says it again, teaching them to observe. And uh, the thing I wanna, want you to see or draw to your attention is that that word disciples that you see in verse 16, the word teach that you see in verse 19, um, and you can, whatever the equivalent is in whatever translation you're using this morning, and then the word teaching in verse 20 is all the same word in the Greek language. Um, and it's the word basically uh, that means to to teach, you know, and the idea behind it isn't just that you have a, a, a teacher and a pupil wherein there's something that's intellectual, but rather it's something um, where, where what he's essentially saying is make clones of yourselves. So it isn't just convey information that you have and get it out to other people in a memo or an email or a text message, but rather uh, be so immersed in other people's lives and have them be so immersed in your life that they literally become clones of you. And that's what a disciple essentially is. And so discipleship, when we talk about it as a concept and, and, and as a, uh, an objective, what we're doing here and why we're here this morning, uh, the word is both a definition and a goal. So it's, it's a pupil-teacher-learning-learner relationship, um, but with the goal of... Um, becoming like the teacher. And so it's the intent to become like the teacher. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. And, and I want to look at it from three aspects. First of all, the process uh, that's involved in becoming a disciple. And, and of course, in this instance, you know, you, you could make the mistake of thinking that I'm the teacher and that you're the disciple. But that is not the context at all. Uh, the context is singularly that he is the teacher and that we are the disciples. So it is, it is a collective learning. It is a con collective transformation. And he's the one that we're following. He's the one that we're seeking to be conformed into the image of. 
you know, on things. And so I want to talk about the process of that, how that takes place, and then secondarily the privilege uh, of that and what it means, and then finally the prize. What is the, the reward? What, what uh, comes of it uh, as we become disciples of him? And so I want to talk about, first of all, the process, this process of discipleship. And so I've asked you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4, and, um, and, and, and what I want to bring forward here uh, in terms of this whole thing of the process is the, the prominence and the importance uh, and the place of the Word of God. And when I say the Word of God, I'm talking about the Bible. You know, I remember as an early Christian, um, I was invited to a, a Catholic Mass, and I was brought up in the Catholic Church, but, uh, you know, broke away from it very early, uh, as soon as I was allowed to by age. And then I got saved several years later, and I was invited with some of my aunts to a Mass, and I brought my Bible because that had become my custom to bring my Bible to church. But, you know, you don't really do that in Catholicism, you know. So my aunt, who was a born-again Christian but couldn't break free of, of the, the, you know, the tradition of Catholicism, she saw it, and I had a thing. Um, and my Bible at that time, it just was called, it said God's Word on the front. It just, you know, it was an NIV Bible that I got for free somewhere, and it just said God's Word on it. And she looked at it, and she goes, God's Word, what's that? <laughs> she goes, what's that book? Like God's word. And, and, she, and I go, oh, I go, that's God's word. And she goes, I'm going to have to get that. And I go, yeah, you should. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but, uh, but, 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 but essentially, what is, when I say the word uh, in terms of this process of being a disciple, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Bible. I'm talking about the scriptures and the importance of it. And, uh, and, and you really cannot divorce discipleship uh, or learning uh, of the Lord, or becoming like the Lord, or being a clone of the Lord, you cannot divorce the Word of God from that process. It, it is absolutely impossible. You cannot become a disciple of Jesus Christ apart from the Word of God. And there's a very practical reason for that. The Word of God is, is first of all, um, demonstrated in its place, in its power, in Genesis 1.1. It says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? You know, and, and it says that God said, let there be light. And so in the very beginning, you have the word of God coming forth, and you see the power of the word of God manifested in the very first beginning. When God speaks, things happen, because there's power in God's word. In Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, that thing that says, by faith this one, and by faith this one, and it goes through the whole list of things. It says in verse 3, in the setup of that whole chapter, it says that through faith, we understand, in other words, faith touches the understanding, faith touches the mind, through faith we understand that the worlds, the physical world, was framed by the word of God, so that the things that appear, the tangible, were made by things that do not appear by the word. In other words, the power of the word of God was manifested in creation itself. God spoke and things came into being. And so the word is a very powerful thing and we know that from the very beginning. The word also has incredible value in the mind of God. If you fast forward just a little bit, and there's a reason why I'm building this from Genesis and moving forward, because they didn't have a Bible. There was no Bible in Genesis 1.1. It wasn't like God handed Adam a copy of the Bible and said, here, become a disciple of me. He didn't have that at that time. But yet he did know the power of God's word. In Genesis 18, by the time Abraham comes around, some 1,800 years after the creation, there was an episode where God visited Abraham 
and he was on his way to Sodom to evaluate the circumstances to, to assess whether or not he would pardon it or destroy it. And as he went, he stopped at Abraham's residence and Sarah was there and, you know, all, all of what was going on. And as God was about to make his way away from Abram to go to Sodom, God said to the two angels that were accompanying him, he said, shall I not reveal to Abraham that thing which I do, seeing, he said, that he also will tell his children and his descendants after him. In other words, God had a revelation. He had something that he wanted to say, and there was value in that revelation to the point where he was holding on to it. And it was only when God realized that Abram is going to steward this treasure, the word of God being a treasure, the revelation of God is a treasure, and and he is going to steward the treasure properly, therefore I will give it to him. And so the word orally was released to Abraham because Abraham understood the value of it and God knew that he would steward it in the proper way. And so the value of the word of God, we see it in the heart of God in Genesis chapter 18. There's also a reward connected to the word of God. If you look at, well, you don't have to look there, but if you write it down, you probably want, I'm not turning to these places because it'll take too much time. But in Genesis 26, after Abraham had died and God now visits Isaac, Abraham's son, God comes to Isaac and he confirms the promise, the covenant to Isaac, the blessing to him that he had given to Abraham, and he gives the reason why. He says, the reason I'm giving this blessing to you, Isaac, is he said, because, and this is Genesis 26, 5, Abraham, listen, obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Think, listen to that again. Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, there was no Bible. There was nothing written down at that time. Yet Abraham had enough of a relationship with God where Abraham knew God and he knew God's word, though it wasn't recorded on paper, you know, and it was treasured by him enough that he lived it out and then it was transferred onto another generation. And when God saw Abraham's obedience to the word, his connection to the word, God said, there's something I'm going to do with your future, your legacy, and what goes forward. And so the word of God is so prominent in this thing of following God, you can't divorce it, even in the times before there was a Bible. So the word of God gives us uh, power, there's value, there's opportunity. But why the prominence of the word in the context of discipleship in the modern era? And the answer is in John 1.1. In John 1.1, it says, in the beginning was the word, And the Word was with God, and the Word, what? Was God. That's right. The Word was God. In other words, the Scripture. And and the Bible tells us itself in Timothy. It says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So every part of the Bible, the Torah, the writings, the prophets, the New Testament Gospels, the Book of Acts, and the Epistles, And the apocalypse, the revelation, from Genesis to Revelation, is God-breathed. It is the Word of God. And the Bible declares that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, it goes on to say, in that same chapter of John, John 1.14, it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
In other words, when we see Jesus, what we're seeing is the physical manifestation of the invisible word that is the personality of God himself. So you cannot divorce God from the Bible because the Bible is the revelation of God in its fullness and in his fullness. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says God, this is how the, the, the letter begins. It says God, who in diverse ways and at diverse times spoke in times past to the fathers through the prophets, has now, in contrast to that, in these last days spoken to us by his son. And literally, it's in his son. Meaning that it isn't that he just spoke by the mouth of Jesus and revealed more. But rather, Jesus was in his life, in his person, in his actions, in his example. Jesus is God. The expression and example and demonstration of God's personality. And Jesus is the word. And therefore, the word reveals God in his fullness. So if we're going to become disciples of Christ, essentially disciples of God, we cannot think in one, for one moment that we're going to do that apart from the word of God. That the word is not going to be the thing that is the main handle or lever in making that happen, bringing that to pass within our lives. Jesus said, well, I'll say it this way, the subject of our discipleship is the word, right? So, you know, you're not going to expect that, that we're going to have an exercise in some other thing, you know, because the subject is the word and the object is to become like our teacher. And our teacher is the word, you know, so, so the word is our subject and it's our goal to become like it. John eight thirty one, and you want to write this one down. John 8.31, it's a famous passage. You've probably heard it before, but Jesus said this. He said, if you continue in my word, then you are what? My disciples indeed. And then he said, and you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. And then icing on the cake, he says, in whom the son sets free, it's free indeed. But if you are my disciples, Jesus said, not just a Christian, I'm not just a churchgoer. I'm not just saved with fire insurance, but I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Then you will, Jesus said, continue in my word. And thus the importance and the prominence of the word of God. Now, this amazed me. This is something that I never considered. You're in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Something that I never considered before or thought about uh, prior to this week. And that is this. That one of the main um, purposes or the main hallmarks of Moses' ministry. I mean, when we think of Moses, if I say Moses, what do you think of? Uh, Ten, Commandments. Ten Commandments, right? Moses was the giver of the law, right? Another one, so, some of you might have said the Exodus, you know, the Red Sea, crossing, bringing, them out, bringing the people out of Egypt. And certainly those are like, you know, the highlights of Moses' ministry. But there's, a, there's another one that's even bigger than either one of those two things. And you know what it is? It's that Moses was the first one to write the word of God down in, on, a, on a page. Prior to Moses, there was no Bible. There was no logos. When we say the word, the, the, you know, the word is logos, the, the, the written word, there was none. 
Everything prior to Moses was just simply handed down. It was either oral tradition that was passed from generation to generation, or there was revelation, God by his spirit speaking to individuals that would seek him and revealing truth to them as they lived. But there was no word. You know, that even when Moses was in Egypt, he couldn't say, like, read his Bible and figure out what was going on. You know, that wasn't there. It didn't exist. He's the one that wrote it down. And so at the end of Moses' life, and that's what Deuteronomy is. It's Moses' last words. At the end of Moses' life, having now put together what we call the Torah, the written word, the first Bible, the five books, all that was there at that time. Having written down this Torah, the word of God, he now gives it to the congregation of God's people. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, he is seeking to communicate to them the value of what it is that he's handing to them. The importance of it and what they are to do with it. In other words, in the very first Bible, the Torah, Deuteronomy chapter 4, God, through Moses, gave the instructions of what they were supposed to do with the word that was being handed to them. So notice in Deuteronomy 4, and the reason why this is in chapter 4 and not chapter 1 is because chapters 1 through 3 is history. He's just, Moses gives the history of how they got where they are. The first word of instruction is given in chapter 4, and notice what it says. And we're just going to look at 10 verses at the beginning of the chapter, and then about 10 verses at the end of the chapter, and then quickly, and we're going to move on. But notice what Moses says, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Now therefore, hearken, O Israel, unto, and, and you're going to have to forgive the King James follow with me, hearken unto the statutes, the judgments, which I teach you to do them that you may live and go in and possess the land, which the Lord God of your fathers gives you. In other words, here's the book. This is the book that I've given you. Listen to it. He says, Hearken to the words that are written in here and the judgments and statutes to do them that you may live and possess the land. And now here's the instructions. Verse two, you shall not add unto the word which I command you. This is not to be edited. It's not to be amended. There is no such thing as a 25th amendment where you can add to this whole thing. This is what you shall not add to the word which I command you. Neither shall you diminish anything from it. You can't subtract from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did because of Baal Peor. For all the men that followed Baal Peor, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. But you that did cleave to the Lord your God are alive, every one of you this day. All that to say is, listen, this is a life and death matter. This is a matter of life and death. This isn't something to be taken lightly. Verse 5, behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, listen, that you should do so in the land whither you go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great 
who has God so near unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, but teach them to your sons and your sons' sons, especially the day that you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, when the Lord said to me, gather the people together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth and that they may teach their children. And so God in these verses says, look, you now have the written word of God and here's what you're to do with it. You're to listen to it, hearken to it. And to hearken means to listen with your whole being, to give full attention to with the mind of being conformed to what it is that's being presented to you to hearken, to listen with your whole being. Then don't add, don't subtract. Then keep it and do it diligently. Then understand this is your wisdom and your understanding. Then understand that you have a part to play, to keep your soul diligently and not to depart from these things and to listen to the Lord your God. Hear my words is how he finishes the passage. And so in other words, what God is saying here is he gives instructions what to do with this word. Essentially, what he's saying is take it seriously. Take it seriously. Take the word seriously. You say, why? Why should I? Look at the end of the chapter. He gives some warnings in the middle. You can read it. We don't have time to read the whole chapter, but I want you to just notice um, in verse 33. And I'm just going to kind of read through up through verse 40, and then I'll just give you the list of things that God says is good reasons why we should do this. He said, did ever a people hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and live? Or has God essayed or ventured to go and take him a nation from the midst of another nation by temptations and signs and wonders by war with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and terrors according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Unto you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God, there is none else beside him. Out of heaven he made you hear his voice that he might instruct you. And upon earth he showed his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them and brought you out in his sight with a mighty power of Egypt, out of Egypt, to drive out nations from before you greater and mightier than you are, listen, to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and upon earth beneath there is none else. You shall keep therefore his statutes and commandments, which I command you this day, that it may go well with you and with your children after you and that you may prolong your days upon the earth, which the Lord, your God gives you forever. So here's what God says. He says, listen, if you give yourself diligently to my word, to hearken, to listen with your whole being, then the first thing that's going to happen, he says in verse 33, is that you're going to hear God's voice. The word of God is the the foundation of what's written in our soul that helps us to recognize the voice of God as he speaks to us moment by moment. 
We can't read the Bible every minute of the day. That's not realistic. We have lives, we have responsibilities, things that we're, we're to do. But we can hear God's voice throughout the day. And the Word of God written upon our hearts is the key of knowing how to hear His voice. Not only that, but in verse 34, you're going to belong to God. It says that God has essayed to go out and take Him a nation. Now apply that to the individual in the New Testament context. Is that not only are you going to hear His voice, but you're going to be His possession. God will own you, in a sense, in, a, in, a, in an endearing sense, that he'll, you're precious in his sight, that you belong to him. There's a sense of belonging with him. Also, he says in verse 36, again, that you're going to hear his voice, and he's going to instruct you. In other words, God's going to be your teacher. He's going to be your wisdom, as we've already read. He says in verse 37 and 38, listen carefully, it says that you're going to be brought out of bondage, that you might be brought in to his promise. He says, he brought you out that he might bring you in. In other words, when he saved us, what did he save us from? And he saved us from, not just so that we could be delivered from what was old, but that he might bring us into that thing that he made us for, the destiny that he has for us. But it's going to come as we listen to him, as we listen to his word. And then he finishes it off in verse 40. <laughs> I love this one because of how generic it is. He says, that it may go well with you. <laughs> when I pray with my kids, oftentimes all, you know, the, especially the little guys, all they say is, God, give us a good day. And essentially, that's what he's saying here. He's saying that you might have a good day. <laughs> you know? He's saying you want life to go well. And if you want life to go well, then take heed. Hearken unto the word and that you might prolong your days upon the earth, which the Lord gives you forever. And so as Moses holds up the very first Bible, he says, listen, this is the most important thing that could ever be placed in your possession, to have the word of God given to you. Therefore, listen to it. Give yourself to it. Let it be your understanding and your wisdom. Hearken diligently. Keep your soul, and it will go well with you. But listen, with that personal responsibility of how I'm to keep myself, there's also a secondary responsibility. What's that? Turn the page. Go to Deuteronomy 6. Just four verses. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. The first responsibility is in verse 6. It says, And these words which I command you this day shall be in your heart. That's responsibility number one is that these things are ours, as we've said. But what's responsibility number two, verse 7? It says that you shall teach them diligently unto your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them upon the posts of your house and upon thy gates. Not only do we have the responsibility of diligently hearkening ourselves, but we have the responsibility of passing it on also to future generations. Now, why I bring this up this morning in the context of what we're doing and of, of our objective of becoming like Christ is because the way the children of Israel grabbed a hold of what Moses is saying right now and obeyed what he said. Now, we know that they were not an obedient people. Right? We know that they were so rebellious. 
and they were full of error and they made many mistakes. But one thing that they did not screw up was the preservation and, and upholding the prominence of the word of God in handing it down from generation to generation. Paul even commended them for this in Romans chapter 2. He says, what advantage does the Jew have? He says, much in every way, primarily, that unto them were committed the oracles of God, the word of God. And they did a good job with that. They didn't get the idolatry thing down. They didn't obey the commandments very well. But the one thing that they did do is they took the word of God extremely seriously. And so it became tradition in the generations that succeeded Moses and all the way through Jewish culture, even into the present day, even right now, that the epicenter of the education and training up of children was the word of God. That was their subject. That was the main objective and priority in the education of a Hebrew child. A Jewish child was the word. And so from the time a Hebrew child was born until they were weaned, the mother and the father would whisper in their ears, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. They would talk to them, sing songs to them in the Bible. By the time a Jewish child was four years old, they would enter into their first level of school. It was called the Bet Sefer, which was the elementary school. And those schools were in the local synagogues. And they were typically led by a rabbi, a teacher, someone who had the word of God, that was trained in the word of God. And, and so the word, as the emphasis of their education, they would begin to commit the Torah, the first five books, to memory, so that by the age of 10, the goal was to have as much of the Torah memorized as possible. Can you imagine? I mean, just think about how um, absorbent a child's mind is and to be giving them the word of God in such a way in those ages where that's the primary influence in their life and they're just memorizing scripture all the way up through age 10. At age 10 they would go to their secondary school which was called the Bet Midrash or the House of Interpretation and there they would begin to learn the oral traditions and they would begin to learn the writings and the prophets, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the, the writings of Solomon and Job. They would study, begin to study the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and those things that had been recorded through the years. And, and, and they would uh, um, give themselves to studying this between the ages of 10 and 13. At the age of 13, what would typically happen is that most Jewish boys and girls would either then go on into the family trade. The young girls would go into the home and they would begin working with their mothers. And sometimes often they would marry even at that young age, 13, 14 years old. You know, they'd be given in marriage. But the best of the Hebrew students, the best of the scholars would then move forward and they would become what was called Taladim. And what Taladim in the Hebrew is basically our equivalent of disciples. And they would be chosen by a rabbi to become students or disciples of that rabbi. And they would then become followers of that rabbi. Now, if you did get chosen and you were a Taladim, you, were, you would become a disciple of a rabbi, your, your life would become listening, learning, traveling with, imitating that rabbi, absorbing everything that you could, not just of his words, but of his lifestyle. Literally, you would be assimilating with that rabbi. And the whole purpose of that rabbi calling you to follow him was in that rabbi's mind 
that you might become like him, that you would become a clone of that rabbi and one day you would become his successor. And it was the highest honor in that society to be called by a rabbi. It would be like the equivalent in our society of being called up to the major leagues. You're scouted at your little league thing and, and you're seen and they call you and you become a, a part of that organization one day, hopefully, to aspire to become a starting whatever. You know, in, in our society, we would go, whoa, you know, that's like crazy. In that society, to be called by a rabbi was the highest honor. The rabbis were the sages. They were the counselors, the commentators. They were the influencers. They weren't irrelevant like the clergy in America. <laughs> you know, in our day where it's like, hey, do you, do you want to be a pastor? Well, if nothing else works out, I'll think about it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like in that day, <laughs> if you were called by a rabbi, that was your ticket. You, you were the best of the best of the best. Now, the, this tradition of how this whole process worked, we see it in the Bible as early as Elijah and Elisha. Remember, I'm not going to develop the story, but remember God said to Elijah, he said, hey, go anoint Elisha to be the prophet in your place. And Elijah went down and he threw his mantle on Elisha. It was a symbol that he was being called. He was going to be a Taladim. And Elisha understood it. He goes, whoa. He goes, this is huge. He had a successful farm. He had 12 yoke of oxen. That's like, what's 12 times 7? Thank you. That's like $84,000 worth of tractor, okay? <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you plug it into that economy then, into, into ours now, you know, that's 80, he's, he's driving this $84,000 John Deere and he's plowing up his farm. And here comes Elijah, throws a mantle on his back, and Elijah goes, are you, are you kidding me? Are you serious? He goes, let me just go say goodbye to my parents. And Elijah says, you do whatever you want. And then Elijah, Elisha, the, the disciple, the Taladim, Elisha, takes the tractor, okay, and he cuts off one-twelfth of it and burns it, all right? That's what he does. He just cuts it, basically he slashes the tires. He goes, when I weigh out what I've got here versus the opportunity that's being placed in my lap to be a Taladim, a disciple of a prophet, Elisha, Elijah, he goes, I'm cutting it off. And then he went, and it says that he ministered unto Elijah. Later on, it says that he washed his hands and his feet. He literally became a follower for 10 years of Elijah. And what was his prayer at the end of Elijah's ministry? He said, what do you want from me? And Elisha said, I want a double portion of the same spirit that's on you. I want to be a clone of you and then some. That was the desire of Elisha in following Elijah. So to follow a rabbi was the highest honor in that society. Have you ever wondered why when Jesus walked on the shores of Galilee and he said to Peter and Andrew who were casting their nets, they were in the middle of a work shift and Jesus said, come follow me. And it says that they forsook their nets and the boat and they went and they followed Christ. Have you ever wondered why James and John, who were at the end of a work shift, mending their nets, putting things back together at the end of the day. When Jesus said, come follow me, it says that they left their father in the boat. They quit in the middle of the cleanup of the shift and they said, see ya. Not only did they not flinch at the call, but Zebedee had no problem with it at all. 
And later on, Zebedee's wife was so moved that she came to Jesus and she said, Jesus, I want you to do whatever I ask you next. She wasn't bitter. She wasn't a, she wasn't saying that Jesus took my boy, like this irresponsible, they're going off running around Galilee, multiplying loaves, you know, uh, you know, (laughs) you know, social media, these kids, these days, you know, there was none of that. A rabbi, a rabbi is calling my son to follow him. A rabbi is calling me. And they left in the middle of what they were doing because they were called by a rabbi to become Taladim, to become disciples, to become followers of the rabbi that were there. And this brings us to the privilege. The process, the word of God. The process, assimilation. The process, immersion. The privilege, Taladim, called disciples. The way that the rabbis were trained is by sitting at the feet of another rabbi. We know that because Paul said that he was, who was a rabbi, he was trained by sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. They would apprentice through that time, their teenage years, and then into their 20s they would gain experience. And at the age of 30, if they were approved by the rabbi, they would then begin to exercise authority. In that society, you weren't allowed to exercise authority until you were 30 years old. That was true whether you were a rabbi or not. Even if you were a carpenter or an auto mechanic or anything else, you would learn. It would be education till 20, experience till 30, and then you could educate or, or really you'd be let loose kind of in your field. And if you were a rabbi and if you were approved, at the age of 30, you would get or go through the, the, um, the ritual of what they called smika or shmika, and it was literally ordination. The word means authority, meaning that you were given authority at that point by the time you were 30. That's why Jesus was asked constantly, who gave you this authority by the Pharisees? Who made you shmika? Show us your papers. We want to see your ordination. Because at that time, by the time you were 30 and you had authority, you now had the right to interpret Scripture. So in other words, you could read a passage and you were allowed to give your particular interpretation and you were considered an authority on that text or on that subject because of your experience and your training and your heritage, your rabbi, who he was. And so you were allowed then to interpret. Now, a rabbi's particular interpretation or bent or doctrine or style, that was called, you're going to love this, that was called their yoke. That was the rabbi's yoke, their particular yoke. It, it immediately calls to mind Matthew 11, right? Jesus said this. He said, come to me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and, and, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. In other words, take my interpretation, take my yoke as a rabbi upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy, my load is light, and you'll find rest for your souls. Now, when the rabbi called you, and you would then go follow the rabbi, you would take the rabbi's yoke, you would ultimately become a clone of that rabbi for the sake of reproducing and being the same exact thing that he was. Now, here's the question. Who did Jesus call? When Jesus began his public ministry, and he was gathering together the group of those that would be Taladim, his disciples, who did he call? He called, listen, people that were already in their trade. 
people that, what does that mean? It means that they were looked over. It means they were passed by, by the community of rabbis that would gather Taladim. It means that they were unqualified, incompetent in the minds of the rabbis of that day to become clones of what they were. Jesus went to a couple fishermen that were in a boat, a couple more. Jesus went to Matthew, who was a tax collector, hated. He would never be chosen. He was hated by the public society. He didn't fit in. And Jesus called those who were looked over by the others, and he said, I want you to be my Taladim. In other words, though you have been passed by, by the rest of prominent religious society, when I look at you, I see that you can become clones of me. You can become just like me. Jesus said as he looked at them. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 24, Jesus spells it out. Absolutely. He says this. He said that the disciple is not above his master nor the servant above his Lord. Listen, it is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. In other words, Jesus' mindset when he calls a disciple is that he says, I'm going to make you just like me. Now, here's what this does for me when I think about this. In the context of the call that Jesus gives today to you and I, to become his disciples, his taladim, his pupils. Is that discipleship, in my mind, goes from an obligation to an opportunity. See, I always kind of looked at discipleship as like, well, if you want to ever be something, if you want to make it in this Christian thing, then don't just be a Christian, be a disciple. And so get your books out and become a student. And, and I'm obligated. Like this is, okay, well, I signed up for this, and so I want to be saved, so I better become. But when I look at it in this light and I realize what Jesus' desire is for me and what he says he can do in me and through me and with me, I realize this isn't an obligation, it's an opportunity. Because he's calling me to himself because he is confident that he's going to be able to make me like him. And that's an amazing thing to consider. It, it moves discipleship from a pressure to a privilege. It's not on me that, oh, am I becoming Christ-like? But rather, it's him. As I follow him, I'm going to become like him. And it moves discipleship from the church mentality, the school mentality, to the every area of my life mentality is that he's going to make me like himself. What's the prize? What's the prize? What happens when we become disciples of Christ? John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus said this. He said, Verily I say unto you, He that believes on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. In other words, you're going to become, you, the things that you do in your life are going to look an awful lot like the things that I did during my earthly life because you are going to become like me. He says in the same chapter, chapter 14, but in verse 23, he says this. It says that Jesus said to them, if a man loves me, then he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our abode with him. Now, what does that mean? He'll make his abode with us. It means that God's going to come and dwell with you. So not only is he going to do things 
in your life that look like what he did, but he's going to come near to you and make his home in you and me. He's going to dwell with us. And that's what discipleship is. Becoming a disciple of him is living in his presence. How does he walk? How does he work? How does he relate with his family? How does he talk to strangers? How does he deal in his business? What's his character like in secret? What are his priorities and his goals? How is he as a man? What is he as a man? How does he approach the scriptures? How does he steward his gifts and the things that are placed in his life? What does he do in every moment? That's what a disciple does with their rabbi. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, if you continue in my words, then my presence is going to be with you and you're going to have a living moment-by-moment example. You're going to know who I am. You're going to know me. Not only does he tell us we'll do what he did, not only does he tell us that he'll be with us where we are, but he gives us a commission in Matthew chapter 28 where we began. He says, go. Just like a rabbi is given, what is it again? Shmika. He gives us shmika. He gives us authority that comes from him to go and do likewise, as he said. And because, listen, because he called you, he believes in you. He called you because he believes that he can do it in you. Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in you, that he is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. And what that means is that he would not have called you to be a disciple of his if he didn't know that he could finish the work that he began. What does that mean? It means that not one of us here that's sitting here right now needs to fail in becoming like Christ, in doing what he did and going with his authority. Not one of us has to come behind in it. He knows it. We're going to close now. We're going to spend the next couple weeks, several weeks, talking about this in depth, this whole concept of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, having a vision for our discipleship. What does it mean? What does it look like? How do, how do we disciple the whole person of what we are? How do we disciple the dad in us? How do we disciple, how is the husband in me discipled? What does it mean to be a a, a disciple in my marriage? What does it mean to be a disciple in my character, in my private life? What does it mean to be a disciple in my mind, in the way that I think, in the renewing of my mind, in the recreation of my mind from what it was before I was saved? How do I be a disciple in my mind? What does it mean to be a disciple as a provider, the way that I provide for my family, my business industry, the the way I create how do I be a disciple as a friend? What does it mean to be, how would Jesus be a friend? If I'm like Jesus, what does that mean for my friendships and my relationships? How am I a disciple in my motivation? What drives me, my priorities? How is that discipled? And my calling, the gifts that I've been given by God so that when I go, when he sends me, when he gives me authority, what does that look like in my life as I'm a disciple of him? And we're going to talk about that over the weeks. And I invite you to come to as many of them as you can and to be here and to be a part of it. And here's what I would challenge you with this morning. Is number one is that you would commit to pray. And these are the things that I would ask you to commit to pray. Four, four things that you would commit to pray for 
First of all, that you would be given by God, that he would give you a love for the word. That God would give you a sincere love for the word. I think that there's a lot of people that like the word. There are probably even more people that tolerate the word. There are a lot of people that appreciate the word. But would you pray that God would give you a love for the word? Job said, I have esteemed your word more than my daily bread. Pray that. God, make me love your word more than I love my food. We all love our food. That is not a question. <laughs> right? Like, do you? I don't care about food. You're a liar. <laughs> everybody, everybody likes food. If you don't like food, just stop eating for a day. And, you'll, and you'll, that'll be renewed real quick, you know. Pray that God would give you a love for his word. He'll do it. Second of all, pray this. Pray that the Holy Spirit would be your teacher of the word. It says in 1 John chapter 2, it says that you don't need that anyone teach you, any man. It says because the anointing that you have received from him, that he will teach you all things. The anointing is the he, it's the Holy Spirit. Jesus said it specifically in John 14. He said that the Holy Spirit in your life will teach you or lead you into all truth. So pray not only that you love the word, but pray. And I'm, I'm, I'm begging you, I'm beseeching you, I'm imploring you to pray these things. Make it a consistent daily prayer. That the Holy Spirit would be your teacher in the word. That's the key to loving the word. Because when the Holy Spirit begins to uh, inspire the text in your life as you read it and make it living to you, that's when you become to love it. He's the one that quickens the taste buds so that you can become a lover of the word of God. So pray that the Holy Spirit would be your teacher. Third, pray this, commit this to prayer, that the word of God would not be an academic exercise, but it would be a relational exercise. That means in church, it means in your personal devotions, it means when you come here on Saturday mornings, it means when you listen to the bridge, a, a message, or listen to a, a message online or a podcast or whatever is that when, you, when, when the word is going in, that it isn't academic. I'm not memorizing facts. I'm not learning theology. I'm not sharpening my points so that I'm correct in my division of truth. It's not academic. It's relational. God, I want to know you. I want your word to be my discipler so that I can become like you, so that, I, so that we dwell together, so that we have fellowship, intimacy together. Pray that. God, that, 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 that your word would be relational and not academic. And that finally, number four, pray this, is that the word of God would get into every area of your life. That its influence, its principles, its commands, its ways would get into every area of your life. The way you live, the way you talk, the way you work, the way you recreate every part. And then finally, that's it for prayer. Those are the four things. But the second thing that I would ask you to do is to get into groups. Get into, if that means that you have to start one maybe in your house and invite some of the guys over, get into groups with one another. And here's why. Here's why. Not only just the fellowship aspect of it, which is crucial. I mean, fellowship is so important, you know. 
I read this this week in a book called Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus. And it, it, it's where some of the stuff came from that I shared with you this morning about the, you know, the kind of the, 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 the uh, educational process and what they went through and all that stuff. But one of the things that the, this author brought out in the book that, that challenged me and, and, and just made sense is that if you were to go to a yeshiva today, a Hebrew seminary, a Jewish seminary, you would expect that you would see a bunch of people with prayer shawls over their head in perfect silence pouring over the scriptures. But I said, not so. If you go to a yeshiva and you walk into an auditorium or a classroom, you're going to see a circle of podiums. And the students are all going to be standing beside podiums and they're going to be talking back and forth. And he says they argue, they debate, they discuss, they evaluate, they just go through and they just talk out these things. And someone will throw something out and someone will say, you're out of your mind, that's heresy, that's not what that means. And then, but, but here's why they do that. is because when they have to refute or prove or test if something is true, it's the best way to learn. Because not only does it refine the truth, but it causes the memory to be established. Because you're, you're speaking it, you're, evaluating, you're chewing it out, you're arguing it back and forth, you're thinking on your feet. And there's something that happens when we get together in a group, and we don't just, we're not just studying quietly ourselves, but we're tossing these things around. We're discussing truths. The justice of God. The righteousness of God. The fairness of God. The ways of God. And you're, you're, you're hammering out difficult things. There's something valuable to it. You're knit together. The word comes to life. Get into groups. Get into groups with one another. Uh, form them. You know, don't be isolated. We're Taladim. We're Taladim. If you continue in my word, you're my disciples indeed. Take my yoke, Jesus said, upon you and learn of me. And my prayer for us is that we would become like our rabbi. Amen. Amen.